For those of you with sensitive ears, this episode contains some spicy language. So be warned, explicits to come, and many of them. From the kitchen table, this is Get Close Panic. I used to eat a huge curry and definitely have my pants completely undone. <laughs> nice soundbite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I heard somebody say the other day that everybody is doing mullet dressing, which is like nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So this is the first episode of the third season of Gate Close Panic and it's been a couple of years I think now since the second season ended. Um, If you want a bit of an update on what's been going on between then and now, um, I've recorded a separate episode which I released a few days ago Um, and part of the reason that I did that is that today's guest is really incredible. It's quite a long interview but it warms up into being a really insightful and funny conversation. And I didn't want to waste airtime talking about myself in what should really just be an episode that's totally focused on Annie, who is the guest for this week. Annie's the social media manager at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. I was working at the V&A before um, I, uh, before COVID basically to kind of put it simply um and for a little bit after and you'll hear us refer to that fact so after I got stuck back in Australia I was still working for the museum at night um for a few months actually um and I was working really closely with Annie we had always been colleagues but um the the burden of um kind of carrying a lot of the museum's presence fell suddenly to Annie and I think you know it was one of those classic situations where maybe the social media hadn't been taken that seriously as um as it maybe should have been up until that point and then all of a sudden you know when everything essentially was online in terms of presence um everybody everybody wanted sort of a piece of the pie everybody had an opinion which I think happens in social media anyway I also work in social still now to some extent um and it, it is one of those careers which um I think invites everybody's opinion you know everybody thinks that they have good ideas and some people do and some people don't I think people fail to recognize that it's a lot of it is data driven of course there is a lot of instinct and creativity um but you know there, there are sort of um, best practices and and I don't think people really or perhaps perhaps people are only just beginning to respect it um, as a very specialized skill um, and one that I think Annie has part of what struck me really early on in meeting Annie was how relaxed she is about the work and that is not to say that she doesn't have really high standards but I think she understands that one of the quintessential aspects of really good social media is having a more relaxed approach to content creation and curation because in the end it's not a formal space um, and it's not a space in which people respond well to formality. It's a space in which you're able to be more creative 
more cheeky, more interesting, and definitely more progressive. And that's one of the conversations that Annie and I started having really early on in my work there. I think I mentioned in this interview that I'm about to play, maybe on our second day, we started having conversations about how we could make the museum a more welcoming place for more people. Um, and that's sort of a thread that goes through this conversation leading right up to the point where Annie and I record this interview, which is sort of right in the thick of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, which has informed a lot of her, or I should say, this was recorded quite a while ago, so it was informing a lot of her work experience during that time, although I'm sure it still does now. Annie is funny and smart and... And I guess that is what it is to be a really good social media professional. Can you tell I haven't scripted myself this time? I normally write a script and just read it, but I'm just sort of like going rogue now. Anyway, um, enjoy the interview. Um, I'll be back at the bottom of the episode with a little bit of housekeeping as usual. But until then, um, have fun. My dog's in here and has just decided to start making a bunch of noise. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> oh my fucking god it's so good to be home so good to be home. <laughs> okay i think he's done all right so um just start off by introducing yourself so who you are and what you do and then i'll kind of kick you off cool. um i'm anianda this is so weird <laughs> i'm anianda um, i am the social media manager for the bna beautiful okay um so like we were talking about just starting wherever feels natural to you when did you first start to think about work um yeah like everyone or most people school so when they start doing careers days and um aptitude tests I guess yeah my school really it was very high achieving academically so there's like a massive emphasis of being like a doctor or a lawyer or you know sort of really high like very traditional high performing jobs but not really in a sense of like you know no one literally walks into being a lawyer no one really literally walks into being a doctor I think there were a few girls who would have a Saturday job but it wasn't really that much of a thing but once I started yeah started thinking about school started started going to um, interview practice interview practice places so there's one day where they're like oh you've got to come in for an interview if you you have to dress properly or smartly so they expect you to come in suits when you go into the real world you realize that no one expects you to wear a suit in any way shape or form just don't turn up in tracksuit bottoms and you should generally be fine and I remember going in and yeah wearing like a a blazer like a really smart blazer skirt shirt and getting marked a four in my appearance and the people that turned up who were it was out of five and people who turned up in their school uniform got a five and it's like you don't go to an interview it, it was so weird it was so so weird I know you um, about why that happened Oh, it's probably because I'm black. Like <laughs> the school, school had oh, school has given me so many complexes. So like, mm-hmm. I remember getting stopped by um, my headmistress quite a few times, and a lot of the black girls would for having um, unnatural hair. So unnatural hair is literally braids, 
uh, like braids with like a little bit of colour in, not, nothing like a pink or like a green or a blue, like literally braids with like maybe like a hint of blonde or like a lighter tips towards the end of it and thinking and being told like my hair is inappropriate. For a long time, I wouldn't go to job interviews with braids or like natural hair because I was afraid that they wouldn't hire me because it looked unprofessional. Yeah, that's a that's a weird complex. Now I'm like, fuck it. And as you've seen, I shaved my hair off um, and, you know, riding that natural wave. But, and another thing that I've sort of, sort of figured out recently is school, they've written, particularly in my school, they really did us a disservice in terms of letting us know the kinds of careers that are out there especially when it comes to sort of science and you know you're either if you did science or good at science you're either going to be a doctor or a nurse if you weren't quite smart enough there is nothing to yeah there is nothing to say you could be an architect if you're really into physics or Mm -hmm. you could work in producing like pharmaceuticals like stuff like that there are so many careers or engineering there are so many careers within that stem industry that they just don't push or don't bother pushing yeah um what was school like for you kind of other than that terrible job experience (laughs) um school was generally oh i say generally fine if i really think back to it like i (laughs) i think most everyone a lot of my a lot of my friends are still from secondary school and i think it's because we're all bonded in the trauma of going to such a weird Catholic convent girls' school. There's a thing where every time any of us say, oh, we went to a Catholic convent girls' school, people are like, yeah, I can tell. Because it's just, (laughs) it's just, I don't know, there's a stereotype, or there's like a mark on us, or like we're just a particular type of weird. It's just people are like, yeah, I can tell. Like, it was good in the sense that because there were no boys or no sort of other distractions, we were who we were. We mm. developed, like, if we wanted to wear makeup, it's because we wanted to wear makeup. If we wanted to dress in a certain way, it's because we wanted to dress in a certain way. Mm. There was no sort of male gaze to make us think that we had to be a certain way or act a certain way or inhibit what we said or inhibit what our personalities were. But at the same time, like, it was such an intense academic environment. GCSE, I'm the dumb one out of my friends. GCSE-wise, I got an A star, seven A's, three B's and a C. I did, like, 12, I did 12 GCSEs, and I'm the dumb one out of my friends. Fuck. So, like, one of my friends friends got, like, 10, 11 A straight A stars, at uh, A-level, she was, like, top three in the country for maths. Were they you had... completely burnt out by the end of your last year? I want to say, yeah, there are a lot of, like, so, so many of my friends have anxiety, have, like, struggled with, like, mental health, because there is just, there was a thing where, like, you're not good enough all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of us, or a lot of them, have definitely struggled in that sort of sense, because yeah you're just completely burnt out you're just putting so much pressure on yourself to be perfect or get like the right grades or like 12 people in my year applied for Oxbridge like that is a huge number only two ended up getting in but that's still a big percentage considering Um, how many people yeah 
There were, yeah, yeah. I, um, I wonder, was that just coming from kind of your school culture or was that the culture at home as well? My parents are, yeah, they're very into, yeah, if you're African, they are very into academics. Like, they do, they, they want you to, it's the ethnic families, they want you to perform well, do well. Like, they've come over to the UK or come over to give you a better opportunity, a better chance. So, but that's the reason why they sent me to the school that I went to. My school was an hour and a half journey for me to go to in the morning. So I'd get a bus, a tram and another bus to get to school. Oh. But it's because the schools in my area at the time, unless they were private, were really poorly performing. Yeah. Um, or they didn't have a sick form to go to or a college to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for example, the school I went to has like a 98% A to C pass rate for GCSE or something like that whereas the schools in my area were like nine percent or like at most like 50 percent so you know they wanted they wanted to give me all the opportunities my mom comes from a really high perform my mom again is the dumb one out of her sisters she's the only one that doesn't have a master's or PhD and my dad like comes from like a long line of sort of general academics so they're like very like education focused and like my little sister is autistic so she doesn't have like she has gone to special needs schools for her entire life so she's she was never going to but basically the academic pressure the pressure to do well was all placed on me because there was no other person to sort of bear or all their hopes essentially have been put on me which is fine like if you've got two children and one of them is not going to have the life that you've sort of imagined or would have hoped for it didn't make sense but I never saw it as a a, a bad thing it's just because mm-hmm. they, they care and I can understand why you know they're from Ghana there's a lot of people who you know you have to pay for your education there mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't get the opportunity to sit in a classroom or sack off doing homework and you know yeah but it's the opportunities while you're here yeah so kind of with that in mind what were you hoping or or planning to do as you were moving out of school um so history I didn't not I didn't know what I wanted to be my A levels I did history English chemistry and biology because I think initially I wanted to be a doctor but I had the humanities sort of angle um, that I was really interested in and I ended up going towards the humanities because A-level biology and chemistry were a shit show. Like what they teach you at GCSE and what actually happens at A-level is two completely different things. Like biology, you're taught when you're in GCSEs that there are four parts to a cell and then you get to A-level and you realise that's absolute bullshit. Fuck. (laughs) It's just... (laughs) It's just like mind blown. It's like you've lied to me for the last like 15 years of my life. And like basically you told me the sky is blue and now you're telling me it's red with like pink dots in it. Like what the fuck? <laughs> um, so that was biology for me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it came, it came very clear very quickly that I was not going to get the grades to be a doctor for that. So, and I like really loved history. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I decided to do at uni, mm-hmm. but had no idea what I was going to do with that. Thought it was a transferable skill. So I had three years to figure out what I wanted to do. 
essentially. Yeah. Were you and your parents comfortable with that realisation that you weren't going to kind of move in the direction of being in one of those elite careers? Yeah. I mean, they, I think, thought that maybe I would end up being a lawyer. I think the actual weird or difficult conversation that I had to have with them is, again, with like high performance school, they took, they had like a circle of girls that they thought could um apply to Oxbridge and I think the initial cut was like the really high performing like my friend who got 12 GCSEs etc and not 12 GCSEs 12 A stars at GCSEs it was like the really really high performing people and then there was like a second round where they included more of us that were doing well in particular subjects saying you know if you want to push like we think you can do it and then me and another girl were chosen to go on a day trip to Cambridge to visit one of the colleges which I think got my dad really excited about going he's like oh my daughter can like go to like so proud my daughter can go to Cambridge and I went and visited it and I thought it was a pile of shit like I just felt so uncomfortable there I yeah like they call the toilet the water chamber like that's not my I'm from London I'm from exactly I'm from South London born and bred I don't have a strong South London accent but I am from Catford like you can't take the girl out of Catford and I just I was like if I come here I am going to absolutely hate my life there was no one who looked like me Mm -hmm. in like from what I saw on that entire day there was I remember seeing a jerk chicken stall run by white people and it's just like no like even so this is this whole thing was supposed to be like state school kids like you can go to like Oxbridge Cambridge like you can do it like it's not just private school kids but literally I was the only black person there everyone was like the posh is the poshest of the posh like state school mm-hmm. and I just felt so uncomfortable mm-hmm. and I remember coming back and having to tell my dad's that I didn't want to go and him like having a massive argument. I think the only proper argument I've ever had with them being like, stop it. I don't want to go. I'm not going to apply. It's a waste of time. I'm not going to get the grades. Like my biology and chemistry are not good enough. I was like A in history and by, um, and his- history and English, but C's in like biology and chemistry. And there was no way in hell that I was going to bring it up to an A no matter how I like, I just didn't have the ability or like the mm-hmm. mental capacity to, push for for A's in those grades and yeah even if I did I don't think I would have wanted to go just because I knew that the people there would not be my kind of people yeah so that was like the big I think them coming to the realization or my dad coming to the realization that I wasn't going to go to Oxbridge or Cambridge because once that sort of ideal dream had been put in his head that's what he wanted for me that was more of a difficult conversation to have than what I wanted to be. But yeah, I think they were happy that I went to the U that I went to because it was still in like the Russell group. Um, it's still so in like what? Russell group. So like there is like uh, in the UK, the Russell group is like a research group of like museums, not museums, museums on my mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> universities. So it's got so kind of like you know America they've got the Ivy League universities yeah so the Russell group is kind of like that but not as uh, yeah not as elitist 
So, and there's like 20, I think 25 universities within that. And it's got more of like a research focus rather than necessary academics focus, but it's still like a good performing university. So I think it was like 20th in the UK for history or something like that. So it was still like a good performing uni. So they were sort of happy and happy that I ended up staying in London rather than running halfway across the country, like my initial plan. Right. (laughs) Did you stay living at home with them while you're at uni? I thank Jesus. (laughs) Absolutely love them. Like they are like, the best parents like kind loving generous people but I I was so lucky that I got accommodation because I wasn't sure if I was going to because I don't live too far from my uni and like at the last minute I was able to get it and I was like nope bye see you um and then you know everyone has to move back home for the summer and it was just the most painful like two months like (laughs) you're so used to like getting home at five o'clock in the morning and just you know hanging out of my ass and then like then getting worried that I wasn't back home for like 10 o'clock and it's like I you have no idea how reckless I've been for the last year like I can't thank god yeah (laughs) um did you enjoy uni obviously socially (laughs) yeah I loved uni (laughs) it it was was a fun it was a really fun time yeah um yeah I had a like really nice group or mostly nice group of nice group of people that I lived with in the first year and then second year I think I became like better friends with the people that were on my course so those ended up being the people that I'm still in touch with but yeah I loved it it was my filler choice because I had no intention of staying in London but I remember going to visit the uni and having my interview there and just falling in love with it so it was yeah I felt I felt so at home with it maybe because there were ethnic people there so rather than yeah. all the other places that I went to go visit yeah uh, but yeah loved my course had really nice lecturers yeah. what were you like once you sort of settled into realizing that you'd stay and stay in that cause what what kind of ideas were you passing around in your mind in terms of what you would do after you graduated? So I initially thought or was interested in PR. Oh. I I don't know why I thought that would be a good idea because I hate talking to people <laughs> and I hate talking to people all the time. That that uh I I looking back at it, I'm like I don't know why that came into my head I don't know why I thought that was a good idea I don't know why Ugh. um I do not envy the press team I do not envy any person who works in PR because yeah. it is a lot of calling journalists and like yeah literally just trying to butter people up all the time and if I can't be bothered I can't be bothered yeah um so I think that's why social media works so well for me. <laughs>
um, in their um, wait, like um, for their restaurant or event side. So I had done an internship in the events office mm -hmm. and thought, okay, like maybe PR events, it sounds like quite a fun time. Yeah. Um, so that's why I started looking to go down that route. Mm -hmm. um went to like a few talks that they had I thought oh I'm gonna like maybe work in fashion PR or like you know everyone wants to do like the really glamorous like events and thought you know I could do this life I've like worked at as an adventure waitress I worked at David Tennant's wedding I'm like <laughs> <laughs> I went be more glamorous <laughs> be more glamorous like you know I've done makeup on like 50 people five faces a minute kind of thing like I've got so many skills yeah. um and then I started looking for internships mm -hmm. um to sort of in in that area but social media was a thing that kept on popping up and I thought oh I've got Twitter I used to do the tweets for the for the uh, not Globe Theatre but the restaurant attached to the Globe um, it's called the Swan at the Globe. So I used to do their tweets and mm. used to do all of that stuff. Why so, did you pick that up? Just because you were the young one? Um, it's they, so uh, sometimes if you worked in the bar, so I usually was an events waitress, but mm. if you worked in the bar during summer, like events goes absolutely dead. So they would like try and rotate you around um, the different aspects of the building. So mm. sometimes you'd work in the bar, sometimes you'd work as a receptionist, sometimes you'd work in the restaurant, sometimes you'd be on like a day event. Mostly weddings is what we usually did. But if you worked as a receptionist, they'll ask you to try and do like a tweet or two. Mm. So the more creative, like lots of people just didn't like doing it because they didn't know what to, to say or what mm. to do. But I took it as like a massive just piss take. I just thought it was funny. That yeah it sounds about right still hasn't changed you know <laughs> so yeah thought it was fine would take lots of nice pictures and just put it out and yeah didn't think anything massive of it and then remember going for a interview for an internship which was for my first job and it was for a social media and music intern uh, and I thought, oh, like, I'm interested in music. And they were like, yeah, it's going to be working on Sony Music. So it was Simon Cowell's record label. So that's like the one of the clients that they looked after. And then the other side was more brand, general brand side. So they did stuff with like IBM, Hotpoint, um, all sorts of general stuff. Um, so that ended up being my internship mm -hmm. so it's supposed to be a three-month internship after six weeks they offered me a job and mm -hmm. that's essentially how I got into social media it was an awful job but it got my <laughs> it was so horrible horrible how oh I don't even know where to start it was very hierarchical Mm. so if you were an intern or a junior member they treated you like absolute shit so I remember I would get emailed by people to get me, get them a cup of tea. Or I remember, and like, I don't, like, I don't drink tea. I don't drink coffee. So me, I was expected to clear out the fridge, even though, again, I didn't use the fridge. I'd buy my lunch every day. So it's a bit like, I don't know why I have to clear out your shit. I remember the woman who managed me would, she was sitting next to the photocopier, Sash printer mm -hmm. and I remember she was on the phone one day and she could literally lift her hand up to get whatever she printed she emailed me to get her paper out of the printer 
it's that kind of like bullshit and I'm not even and I'm not even getting on to the guy who was my MD if I saw him on the street I would punch him (laughs) (laughs) he was horrible he was not only like racist but misogynistic and women should be seen and not heard to him and so I being the gobshite that I am was like clearly not his cup of tea so he would say like really condescending things to me like oh do they have cars in Africa and I'll be a gobshite back and be like no we um, swing from trees you know like Georgia the jungle that's how we get around or um like Annie do black people do a lot of crack um can you tell me why it's like or he's he yeah and he would he would um live it he lived in devon or one of those like places <laughs> you can still see the hatred is so real um and so during the week he would stay in peckham with his sister yeah. peckham obviously is like very close to like grew up like adjacent to Peckham and for like three days of the week he would go back home to be with his like wife and kids and he I remember getting a cab back with him on from a night out and him saying I like Peckham it's just a bit ethnic or him also saying to me that um, one of the sole reasons that he married his wife was because her sole ambition in life was to be a housewife and he had dated career women before. And this man was 37 at the time. Ah. I was 37. It's not like he's from like a different era. He was 37. Um, how old were you during this? 21. Period? 21. Was this 20. like your your first professional experience of a real asshole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what made it even worse was the woman who ran it, who uh, the CEO. Hmm. She was my first experience of someone who was also ethnic, hating the fact that they were ethnic. So she um, anglicised her name. Um, she... I'm not going to say what her name is, yeah. but she, yeah. Um, for example, say like her name was like Sitara mm-hmm. or something like that. She changed it to Susie. That's an example. That's not her actual name. Yeah, but no, it, yeah. like, I took her husband's surname. So it's even more anglicized. Um, she would say shit like, you know, you'll never work in fashion because you're black and they only um, hire like pretty white girls just because you hate the fact that you are ethnic and want to scour yourself of anything that makes you, you know, Asian, she was, she was an Indian woman, Mm. doesn't mean that I should be ashamed of what I look like and who I am. She, she was, yeah, she was not a good person. And I've seen her since, obviously it's been, what 29 on Sunday so it's been eight years since I've started working professionally and I saw her during like all the Black Lives Matter stuff saying about the thing doing like a supposedly heartfelt video to what they called advertising what CIPR or one of these advertising bodies Mm. and saying that there's not enough diversity in the industry and it's like 
yeah, there's not enough diversity, but you're not the person to to be championing this. You are an awful human being. Everyone that I know that has come across her, like so, I had when before I started before I started at the VNA, mm-hmm. I think I had my second interview the day that I had a first interview with another place, mm-hmm. and the woman who interviewed me, she's like, "Oh, you worked at," and I was like, "Oh, whoops, I probably shouldn't say that." <laughs> if you, I can take that out. I can take that out. I will. And you worked at this particular place. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, oh, I also work there. Mm-hmm. Did you know so-and-so? And I was like, yes. And they were like, she's a cunt. And for like the first 20 minutes, half an hour of the interview, we were just bitching about how horrible this person was. Yeah. Like, yeah. So you were working with two really overtly awful people Okay. Who were also really overtly racist. Yeah. Cool. How long did you do that for? I was there for a year and three months, and I was miserable for a year and two months of it. Like, you know, I part of me wishes I never stuck with that job, but I think all of the things, what all, all, all of life has taught me, is that all your experiences are useful. Um, so, you know, I was working on eight of the 11 clients that they had and I basically learned how to do everything on that job. So from like copywriting to like reporting to ads to, you know, back in the day, Facebook used to have like light gate competitions. So that was a really like quick way of getting lots of likes, Mm -hmm. um, like sort of very very basic design skills like there is so much I learned just because there were so many clients and I was expected to do so much mm. yeah I learned a lot on that job did it pay that oh awful I made more money waitressing than I did in that job and another awful thing about that job was so myself and this other guy started within like two weeks of each other, both interns. Mm-hmm. When he, I got promoted, promoted to a full-time job before he did. Mm-hmm. When he got promoted, he was on two grand less than me. And I argued that that was not right. If we're doing the same job, that's not right. Mm-hmm. So he got a pay bump. And then he ended up being, so we were given this like booklet to say, before we get promoted, we have to complete X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. I had basically done any, because I was working on so many clients, he was literally only working on one. Mm-hmm. I worked on so many clients that I, like within like a week, I could say that I had basically done everything. Mm-hmm. He still got promoted over me. And when he got promoted over me, he was yeah on a ton more than what I was on. And when I eventually got promoted, I was still on less than him. It just wasn't, it just wasn't right or fair or, yeah. Sounds like the epitome of a bad workplace. It was horrible. Absolutely horrible. When, how, um, how long were you doing it for before you started looking at getting out? Oh, I, I want to say I started wanting to look or started looking for jobs 11 months in. Yeah. Because I thought you need to have at least a year on your first job before you're employed and you know once you're you've been employed it's easier to be 
employed by other places. Very simple. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's my parents. Like they, yeah. they've always been like, you can't just quit, no matter how much you want to. You always have to have something to go to. And I completely, completely get that. Like you don't want to be unstable. The stability is always key. But yeah, I mean, that place was so bad that sub unconsciously or subconsciously, I wore head to toe black for six months. That's very unlike. And <laughs> head oh, to toe that's black. Mean. That's so bleak. It was, I was in mourning for my life. I just hated it so, so, so much. And I remember go calling or having my having them asking why am I so miserable and it's like well what the hell do you expect like I'm managing interns I'm doing x y and z I'm like doing so much and you're treating me like absolute shit and not paying me enough and working so fucking hard and I remember having a review and that particular man coming down really hard on me and saying like let's pick this back up in like a few days time and I remember like the next day I had a job interview which I didn't tell them so I I called in sick and was like oh I've got this interview luckily I got that interview like had one interview thought I was going to have to have multiple interviews got that job I remember doing going for the interview getting a task to do sending the task at like midnight on like Saturday and then like seven o'clock on Monday I'd been offered the job so I like went in to that place (laughs) that awful place and we had like our second part of my review and I literally just quit right there and then on the spot it's like life is too (laughs) life is too short to be this miserable so I quit and I, I think I took away his he wanted to fire me so badly but I took that away from him and so he was like you know okay go upstairs um you know write your resignation letter type that out and you don't have to come back from now on and I was like I'm happy to finish out the week because there is I was working on genuinely working on eight of the 11 clients and I know for at least two of them one person who was supposed to be managing those accounts did absolutely nothing I did everything so they wouldn't have known what's going on and so I remember going up typing my starting to type my resignation letter uh, or resignation email and being shut out of my computer whilst I was I was doing that and just sort of walking out of the building and messaging my friends being like and they took them to a room at the side to tell them that I was going towards the end of the day and meeting them in the pub after and being like, I'm done. <laughs> I also have a new job. So, uh, and uh, so I was technically put on garden leave, but the next day, and this is why I'd offered to like come back and like finish out the week because they could, I knew for a fact that I had worked on so many different things that they would be fucked. Yeah. I got 30 calls the next day from different people asking, okay, where are you up to in this? Or like, what are you doing with this? Or like, he had, because he had chucked me out, it was, he, and he didn't think rationally, he just underestimated exactly how much I did. Mm-hmm. And because I was, again, technically on garden leave, I had to come in and do meetings still. 
for some of the clients because again they had no idea yeah, yeah. what was the new job <laughs> it was a place that was probably equally as bad oh, but in a different place. <laughs> oh no i was so news yeah i i have unfortunately not had the best of luck when it comes to jobs mm. so the second place was better um in terms of i was their first social media hire so they brought me on to basically do anything and everything and it was a very it was essentially why that place the second place that i worked was a bit like a carry-on film mixed with mad men so it was very yeah so it was very old school like they would purposely i think they'll purposely hire young girls mm-hmm. who didn't know any better and not necessarily use and abuse them but it was a very like slap on the ass wink wink kind of environment luckily for me that didn't happen because i think they knew better that um i would tear them a new one if that happened but what i didn't have in sexual abuse I had in, I guess, racial abuse. Yeah. So that was the place that I was called a dumb slave once. Um, yeah, by the director of PR. I, I was asked if I wanted to work on the UKIP leave campaign. Um, it was not a good place for different reasons. Was that, an, was that agency work? That was agency work. Right, yeah. okay. Which I, I kind of glean from mostly from my experience of being in the office at the museum from those people who have been in, in agencies that they've got a bit of a reputation for being kind of unhealthy work environments. It's not. And it was one of those places where it was like a work hard, play hard culture. So, you know, people would always go out for drinks. I would go for, lunch every day because i'll get so like the working hours were 8 30 till 6 which is longer than the normal working day yeah. but i would be getting in at 7 7 30 most days and not leaving till about 8 most days mm-hmm. because i just had so much work to do mm-hmm. but within that i would have like a two hour lunch mm-hmm. and everyone would like take long lunches and i would be buying a bottle of wine with friends during those lunches so it's like that that's not normal you shouldn't be going to you know spending 17 pounds for lunch every day because you're just going and getting pissed at lunch and then going back to work yeah it was like very 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 strange culture um it was acceptable to turn up hungover it was acceptable to you know yeah it's a really really weird culture were you conscious of it being an unhealthy culture while you were there? I mean, I think because I was still really young, mm-hmm. I thought it was fun to start with. Um, because, you know, most, I think the average age of the office or the people that I hung out with was maybe like 24, 25. And I joined when I was 22. Mm-hmm. And compared to the other place that I'd worked where it was literally, they just didn't even like it if you went out to go and get your lunch, let alone, you know, go for a drink at lunch. Yeah. It felt like it was a nice breath of fresh air. It felt like it was more of a community vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, and they made it a much more of an effort to make you, the people, the actual people who worked, like the managers, the 
I guess officers or whatever like the more junior members of staff like all those people are gold like some of them are still like my closest friends today Mm -hmm. I've met so many people from that period of time in my life that I'm still really close to we're all bonded it was more of like the directors and heads up that were horrible uh, or more problematic yeah did it did that that job sort of cannibalize the rest of your life yes and no I mean yeah it was so intense that yeah you ended up hanging out with the people constantly like that was like half of my like social life mm-hmm. but no in the sense that I've got so I've I've got so many friends that sounds really that sounds really really <laughs> really arrogant but I do have a lot like most of my friends are from because I'm from London most of my friends are from London most of my friends live in London so I was I was able if I wanted to escape I was able to like I had enough of a balance Mm. there are people who like literally all their friends were the only people the only people that they were friends were were the people that they worked with like they lived with them breathed like all of that and I could see that I was not that I was close to people but they were not my be all and end all because maybe because I had a job beforehand or because I had you know stable connections Mm. but yeah I was yeah it didn't completely cannibalize my life um what what sort of made you start to think about leaving that how long were you in it so I was there for two and a half years yeah um I just started getting burnout and one of the really annoying things was so there so I was the only first social media hire and I was working all hours of the day doing God everything and instead of hiring me help or talking to me about how the the structure of the team was going to be they just hired me a boss like straight off the bat who didn't help with anything she was a lovely woman I'm not going to disparage her but she was useless and then we hired a um a social exec I guess Mm -hmm. and they didn't get on and I was getting and then we got a social media copywriter Mm -hmm. and I think the straw that broke the camel's back was that boss went on holiday and left a shit show Mm -hmm. for me to clean up and I was managing to those two people Mm -hmm. and finding out that the person that one of the people that I was managing was getting paid six grand more than me and I was their line manager. I was signing off their holidays. I, yeah, it was, it was not right. It was not fair. And then being made to feel guilty about asking for more money, even though I was working so much more, so, so hard for that place, for that person. And they're like, oh, all we can offer you is this amount and like this title um, after they had fired that person, my boss. Um, for basically being useless and being not great at her job and I was just tired I was just so tired you know we were closed over Christmas and the person who was head of PR was a real nasty piece of work like real drunken awful person like I have so many stories about that particular woman she's like terrifying she like once once punched a client in the face like whoa yeah yeah such extreme places 
but yeah she was a massive drunken mess mm-hmm. um i don't know if you've watched love is blind i have not sadly it's so so sorry. <laughs> there's a per- person in there called jessica so yeah. um, for all your listeners out there there's a person <laughs> in there called jessica, <laughs> jessica who i can only describe this particular person as a more drunken mess of a human being that is very evocative thank you yeah, <laughs> yeah. like yeah <laughs> do like, you she would get drunk and if you always drink red wine and she'll have like red wine mouth and red wine teeth yeah and she would corner i guess some of the more junior members of the team and basically rip them to shreds <sighs> that kind of person so and there were potential plans for the social division to be absorbed by the pr team and she would have been my boss and i was like not today satan yeah, that was one of the <laughs> final straws. Like, I'm not having it. Um, <laughs> did yeah. you? Um, did you get to? Was it at the end of this job, or have you ever gotten to the point in your career where you were not just looking to get out, but were actually kind of consciously looking for a particular sort of type of job or work environment or work-life balance? Or has it just been a case of like? get me the fuck out of here, give me something else? Um, I would say maybe the last two jobs mm-hmm. that I've had uh, when I was wanting to get out, that was my, a very conscious decision. So the job after my second job, so the third job, mm-hmm. I knew after a week that I didn't want to be there. Yeah. And I kind of had a bit of a, a crisis of like, what the fuck do I do? Do I even want to stay in social media? Yeah. And like the unfortunate thing is, um, so I was there for two weeks and my boss got fired after on my second week, end of my second week. And so it was me and two other girls, three months. And I was looking for jobs for like that entire period of time. Cause I'm like, I hate this place. I hate this place. I liked the people that I was working with on my team, but the culture was just a completely different culture, very cliquey compared to all the other places that I'd been at. And I didn't like that at all. Yeah. So the second, the third job, sorry, third month, they made the other two girls redundant. So I was the only social media person. And if I had known that they were going to do that, I would have been like, let me go because I hate working here and I was only there for like 10 months um but like during that time I was like do I even want to still work in social media do I look at something like teaching um the next place that I want to work at I need to like make sure that the culture like is more fun so when I went for my fourth job I was I asked a lot of questions about what the work-life culture is and they were like oh you know we, we all hang out like we're all the way they sold it to me and what actually was they sold it to me thinking they said all the right things um they talked a lot about mentoring and like how they've like sort of really worked to build people all bullshit right. but I moved specifically because I thought okay this is the kind of work environment that I want to be in I'm like tired of teams just like falling apart around me and literally just being by myself and yeah that was all bullshit so when I was looking for the current job that I was in I was like I just want to work on something that I'm actually interested Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. um and teaching did pop up again but 
yeah, the VNA was the only place that I actually physically applied for. The other interviews that I had, I got headhunted. But yeah, VNA is the only thing that I specifically applied for. And I thought if I don't get this, then I'm not sure what I'm going to do. But I'll probably, yeah, probably go freelance and maybe work to becoming a teacher. Now that you've kind of been... I mean, I, I won't kind of put words in your mouth about your current role, but do you think that that sort of knee-jerk reaction to kind of go to almost the other end of the spectrum and, and go over to something like teaching, was the was you kind of conflating those really toxic work environments with social media work? Um, I think it's a bit of both. Um, so I kind of want, I was looking at the things that I enjoyed about my job. Yeah, and I sort of enjoyed like the people development side of things. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed like the research part of things. Mm -hmm. um, I enjoyed, you know, sort of like the one to one contact that you have, which is a lot of what teaching is about. But I like sort of understood that is like a very very big change. Mm -hmm. So before I wanted to potentially go into it and it's still something that I'm potentially interested in doing in the future. Mm -hmm. Um but I decided I was going to do mentoring for young people to sort of see is this thing because I hate where I work or is it a thing because I actually genuinely want to do it. And I'm not ruling out that I might not do it might do it in the future. I think you know the more life experience that you have when you are a teacher I think the better it makes you more relatable it gives you more insight as to what real life is like you know you're not going to lose your job because you didn't do your homework like that's not how life works however it does teach you a work ethic so it's relaying that kind of stuff to kids that I think is very much missed and lost um and I wish I had when I was growing up but I just wanted to work on something that I had a passion for yeah. and I was tired of working on bullshit brands and people, clients just being absolute dogs ears of like people. I, I had one client who one of the comments were, do women ride bikes? And I just wanted to punch them in the face or like... <laughs> I just, you know me, like, I just have no time for people just being glib and, like, yeah. just just do it. If you want to do something, just fucking do it. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't care if there's not a full stop at the end of this. I, I, I don't give a shit. I will openly say my attention to detail is non-existent because I just want it done yeah. and you can polish it later. I think people make the mistake. I mean, I think I kind of learned from you actually when I got to the VNA that people tend to be too precious. Yeah. I think particularly when they're doing sort of content creation and actually once you get into the rhythm of it, you you get less and less so and actually your content gets better and better because it feels more human and that's that's what works. So we've skipped forward a little bit, but um what <laughs> your experience of sort of um, applying for and then getting the role that you're in at the VNA? So yeah, the VNA, when I was looking for jobs, I remember got, I got put on review because I wasn't passionate enough Jesus. about my job. 
and we would have reviews every three months and they were just I I'm a very laid-back person at work obviously you've seen me get annoyed with things because you know I love a rant but it's never at people it's two people and ranting about a thing I would never yell at someone but on like a sort of general day-to-day I'm really chilled and they I don't like being micromanaged and they were very much of like a, we need to know exactly what you're doing every day, all day, every day. They were very precious about everything. Mm-hmm. And that's, they were very type A personalities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see people like having panic attacks and crying and that to them was a sign that you cared. And yeah. that's, again, that's not me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't cry. Like we know I'm, I'm not a crier. And my sort of way of dealing with stress is I'll either like place myself out of the situation. I will always work, get my deadlines done. I always work. And to me, it doesn't matter when, how someone works or what their working style is. As long as it's done by the deadline, as long as you deliver, it doesn't matter how, it shouldn't matter how they work. Yeah. So if yeah. I decide that, I mean, this is not what I personally did, but if I decided that I wanted to work till 11 and your deadline to me is nine o'clock in the morning, as long as you get it for nine o'clock in the morning, what's your problem? Yeah. That's my sort of like analogy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they, they liked a particular type of personality that I didn't fall into. And they, I remember in the review being like, oh, you're not as sassy as we thought you would be. As I could, they they assumed that I was going to be this, like, literally literally thought I was a, I don't know, the sassy black friend from a film. I remember that they loved going to karaoke and one of the owners would go up to to me and be like, why is it that black people can sing and dance like so well? And then ask me, do I feel uncomfortable because I'm the only black person in the agency? I kind of get that you kind of mean well in that kind of sense. But at the same time, if you can recognise that as an issue and I might feel uncomfortable, do something about it. Don't sort of patronisingly ask me. Yeah, it was it was a really difficult place to work. That really fucked with my confidence, that place. And yeah, you'd have reviews every three months and it would just be like them ripping you to shreds for like three months straight oh yeah there was no like plan of action to help you grow it was just like ripping you to shreds Mm -hmm. but anyway so I was I remember being put on review and sort of working to put myself like out of review but also I'm like by the next three month review I want to be out of there so I had like my time limit and uh remember there's a job for natural history museum that came up and I thought this would be cool but I don't like science um so let's leave that and then the job for the VNA popped up and I thought okay like this is I guess the dream job I studied history specialised in Victorian history mm. randomly specialised in Victorian sexual history like the yeah. was Victorian yeah. lesbians they did exist flat um so I used to get really weird looks on the train people asking me are you a lesbian and like no this is just really interesting um straight as they come unfortunately <laughs> really wish <laughs> really wish I liked things other than men but you know is what it is applied for the job yeah. uh, didn't think I was going to hear back mm-hmm. and like the deadline for when they said that you would hear back passed 
and I was like oh well clearly didn't get it and then got a message saying that I had got an interview and pick a time slot and there's like 30 different like time slots and like oh wow so you just assume 30 other people yeah yeah and I, I don't know how many people they ended up interviewing all together but I think they had like something like 400 applicants or something stupid like that yeah. and so yeah and that's why it took them so long to get through so I was like okay I'm lucky that I even got an interview and I remember exactly who was in the room it was the head of content digital content it was at the head of marketing so jane um at the time i don't know if you ever met jane lovely amazing woman um and it was the head of press so um a lovely woman called phoebe and i remember like walking in doing the interview being like okay that's like the best that i could have done but i have no idea who i'm up against and yeah also seeing the fact that they had so many time slots to like book your time and then saying it's only three people for the next round I was like oh shit okay we'll we'll see and then getting the second interview and being like okay and getting the task to do and being like okay 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 like let's make this as good as possible and there being three time slots thinking okay like actually strategizing what time did I want to go for? Do I want to go for nine o'clock, 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock? And then she's going for 10 o'clock, but then being like, no, I want to do nine o'clock because if anyone has the ideas that I have, at least I put it out there first. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, proper like strategize. And like the guy that I was dating at the time was like, wow, like you're probably going in for this. And I don't think he thought I would get it because he's like, you know, just remember, you know, you've done well to get this far like yeah I'm highly aware that it's a very sort of white middle class environment and I've never worked in a museum setting before even worked in-house but all I can sort of show them is that I'm passionate Mm -hmm. and all I can do is yeah just do me and luckily that worked so I remember going for another interview later that day just as like a just in case because I've been headhunted and thought that place is nice. I really bonded with that woman because we bitched so much about <laughs> that particular so-and-so from my first job. And like, if I didn't get the V&A gig, then that might be a nice place to go and work. But then I got a call, like literally as I was coming out of that interview and I got told that I got the job and I remember walking into work and telling my workmates and literally like nearly crying from like happiness that I was just out. And I remember saying to Jane, I hope I make you proud. And yeah, it was so like cheesy, but I was so, so, so happy that I was leaving that place and leaving to go somewhere that I actually wanted to work. Mm. So yeah, it was, it was nice. So now we're in the kind of present job yeah but it's, you've been where how long have you been at the vna now two years just over two years okay and and how's it changed like what was it like when you first came into that role um and how's it changed um so i was told to crack the whip that was literally my job description <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> by jane she was like okay like you basically need to 
sort out our social presence essentially and it was a free-for-all I think I'm quite lucky that I didn't get much resistance or any resistance generally Mm. because you know a lot of the team are new or a lot of the team the current team started after I did so I was able to sort of put notions in place and I think there were some stronger stronger characters or more vocal characters and that I might have had some issues with that had left by the time I started but yeah essentially I I have never had a job where I've been given so much sort of just agency or so much trust and like I'm not micromanaged in any way shape or form which is a joy and delight I'm mostly listened to sometimes I'm not and when I'm not listening to shit hits the fan but hey ho they're they're learning and you know there's there's a really good group of people it's definitely obviously it's not perfect as you know but it's definitely for me the best job I've ever had because I mean it's a great job but also most of all of your other jobs have been horrible nights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most of my other jobs have been a pile of shit. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, I, um, some of this stuff is going to feel a bit weird for you to answer because some of this stuff is stuff that I already know. But if you'll um, humour me, um, what does your sort of working day or your working week look like? It changes from day to day there are things that I have to do like a content plan reports and you know I guess like stakeholder management but there's also a very like creative side so like last week I went in and we were doing the welcome back video so that was just me and you know Georgie just with a film crew just us in the museum which is like very surreal seeing it in that empty it's a lot of like content creation in general trying to commission stuff or get stuff done or occasionally star in the videos or just my hands uh, yeah it's it's hard to describe it's like community management there is there is no it's, a, it's such a cliche but there's no one day that is the same um and you sort of work on different bits and pieces and you work with different people all the time so whether it's you know trying to help someone promote an event or discussing with someone whether a celebrity should be you know coming to the museum to help promote the reopening and you're like that's a bad idea or you know at the moment I'm doing a lot of like race lobbyist stuff with like the mass action group and trying to work with like the board of directors to sort of make changes so all sorts of stuff like things that are specifically social media but also things that are not necessarily within my remit but it stretches there is so there's so much random stuff that I do yeah um I was gonna ask you about that actually because but recently you and I were talking about sort of managing social throughout the the kind of rise of the Black Lives Matter movement do you want to talk a little bit about what that's been like for you sort of professionally and obviously personally as well yeah it's I think if you are for every black person at the moment it's been a very real I guess eye opener to see how your place of work reacts or how your place of work values you Mm -hmm. I it's difficult because 
I know that the people who work at the museum have the best intentions at heart and the way things were done wasn't perfect but I think it's given them a kick up the arse to go and sort of do the right thing mm-hmm. or at least try to do the right thing and it's going to be a long journey like you no, no one's going to solve racism or anti-racism overnight like that's not how you can't dismantle a system that's been there for hundreds of years sort of expect things to change overnight that's not going to happen um but I think yeah it's it's weird and it's difficult because you saw the comments of what people were saying when we didn't initially post on the Blackout Tuesday. And, you know, for me, obviously I'm black. And yeah, it was just really difficult because how I feel personally and professionally, it, it, you can't, it's not, not something that you can separate. Mm-hmm. And you sort of see, you see, you saw lots of people being like, why haven't you posted or you know being those x y and z and like you know sort of saying like really personal stuff and you know it's not necessarily directed at you but you also know that they don't know that it's a black person that is behind and you know what I want to state and what I want to write I can't and I think it's just generally it's just generally it's a it's a problem if you work in social media that no one really realizes that there is a person with a heartbeat who's behind those accounts you know we all make mistakes or say the wrong thing or this typo every so often no one is perfect but you know you're part you're a mouthpiece you're not the museum or you're not the brand and you're not the client so when you're saying something really disparaging yes you try not to take it personally but there's an element of yourself that you kind of do take it personally so and yeah, seeing the online reaction or just general online reaction to brands that didn't handle it well. It's just like, yeah, it's just very, it's very disheartening because you wonder how much stuff people have said is lip service and they're just doing it to be performative, which I think that's most brands and most people. And, you know, I think I kind I get why the museum posted later than they did because it's not something that can be done overnight Mm -hmm. I do wish that I was listened to more or the people who wanted to post were listened to more and you know they've got a black person doing their social media so (laughs) kind of use me as a resource in this case because no it's not tokenistic it's not just a political movement it's people's actual lives But yeah, it's hard to sort of fully understand when you're not black, essentially, or you don't come from that that area, or you don't really have anyone outside of your echo chamber that is can give you like an alternative point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that goes across the board for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people need to have people within their camps who are who can provide that alternative point of view. Mm-hmm. So you have a much more balanced, you might still decide not to do something or, you know, something's not quite right, but at least you've got a fuller picture as to why before you make that decision or have that understanding. 
but I then I know for a fact that the other places that I work will probably not do anything or probably haven't done anything or wouldn't care to do anything yeah so you you're kind of you're part of it did you call it a mass action group yeah um what are you guys sort of um aiming for in this short term and then also in the long term I think it's things like um so there's going to be I think Tristram Hunt has spoken about this but there's an anti-racism task force that's been put together and it's supposed to sort of generally crack um how does the museum act in a more diverse way I guess or usher in diversity and opportunities across the board over the next five years yeah so basically it's a long-term goal for the museum Mm -hmm. so we propose things like um diversity training on conscious bias training you know working with HR to figure out a way to properly report on you know microaggressions and how do people feel comfortable about complaining about certain things like educating the security you know people get stopped all the fucking time for no reason there is a marked difference between when they search your passport when you're black as opposed to like white colleagues i've seen my i've like personally been stopped so many times even though i you know, I've worked there for what, two years and I've seen colleagues literally just walk in and not have to show their pass. Mm-hmm. It's, it's stuff like that. I feel like you have a pretty, uh, a pretty decent rapport with Tristram, who is the director of the museum, by the way, for everyone who's not us. Does it feel meaningful? Does it feel like a meaningful conversation and a meaningful kind of uh, set of changes? I hope so, but with all these things with life, I will believe it when I see it, really. Actions speak louder than words, so, you know, you can sell a great dream, but, you know, unless unless you actually put it into practice, it means, it means nothing to me. So we'll see. Yeah, and I mean, that's, you and I, I feel like you and I started talking about this within like a day of me getting there, I mean, there's a lot to unpick because it's not just, you know, who you're hiring and how you're um, treating those people. It's also working within a museum that has a pretty um, uh, difficult history and, like, there's a lot of really complicated debates. So kind of working within that in its, like, the, the museum in itself is, is really difficult to navigate in terms of ethics. There are, there are a lot of dodgy histories. I think that's with a lot of British museums. There are a lot of, you know, Tate comes from Tate Sugar plantations. Um, slave owners, yeah, right. Tate Sugar. So there's like very tricky history around that. Mm-hmm. British Museum, like <laughs> the Museum of Looted Objects. Like, yeah. you know, there are, there are a lot of, places with a lot of dodgy histories mm-hmm. but it's as a sector it's it's that's not going to be solved overnight so I mean I'm confident that people can do it because you know if they if they've made upskirt in a crime legalized homosexuality and gay marriage um and you know women can vote can probably you know is a possibility 
I, I am hopeful. I am hopeful. <laughs> okay, so we're kind of getting into the, the, the last phase. Um, and I'm also conscious of the fact that, are you working right now? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I can hear I'm your phone box going off. It's like really adding a music <laughs> to this interview. I just wanted to kind of ask you about how sort of COVID and lockdown has affected um, obviously your day-to-day, but also how you think about your work and, and kind of what your immediate plans are or what you're kind of expecting for the immediate future. Um, so I don't think we are going back to the office till next year, yeah. it seems. So I have basically made my spare room into an office mm-hmm. um, or in the middle of changing it up into its uh, workspace for me. So I don't carry on working at my dining table so I have my living room is my living room again so I've got a place to sort of dissociate and I can leave that room and think okay like I'm done for the day I would say like the first part of lockdown was really difficult I was working like silly hours because I felt like I couldn't switch off Uh and there was a lot of eyes and a lot of pressure on social Mm. and sort of the digital channels to sort of really pick up everything that's going on in the museum mm. so that was that was a stressful start I'm sure you can also attest to that start was quite stressful was. especially <laughs> not being able to be <laughs> in the country yeah <laughs> um, so yeah so that was an interesting first few weeks but you know, it's, 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 I think as people have gotten used to it, um, and this has now become a new normal, I think it's actually going to be weird going back into work. Mm-hmm. I've never seen so much of my flat in my entire life. And, uh, <laughs> I've been in my flat for like 10 years this year. And <laughs> like in the nine and a half years before, I probably spent the amount of time in it like the same amount of time as to like what I had in the last like four or five months like oh it, shit. yeah, yeah it was like how are you coping with just being at home all the time like you're never at home you're always somewhere <laughs> so, so I suppose I I mean I guess the um I guess the last thing that I always ask is such a cheap question but is there anything that you feel like is sort of important to your um, story in terms of your talking about your career that we haven't touched on. I remember one of the pieces of advice that I got early on in my career mm. is that you know you're never going to be able to be yourself fully at work. There is like a work you and a you you, and you've got to find that balance or find a place that will allow you to be as much of you as possible. Mm. And I was thinking about that the other day and thinking, actually, that's not quite right. Like wherever you work should be able to, you should be able to be your full self because if they're only getting a single part of you, then that's not, that's not conducive to you. It's not conducive to your work. It's not, it's not they're not getting the best out of you. And I feel like at the VNA, at least I've just I've been able to be the full gobshite that I am, and you know, <laughs> I've never been one to shy away from an opinion, as <laughs> as they have said. 
<laughs> never had an opinion in my entire life and sort of thinking like you know I might not always get listened to or things aren't necessarily perfect but I've never felt like I've had to hold my tongue which is a massive blessing because yeah definitely the last two jobs I don't feel like I've been able to do that mm. or maybe my entire career I've always had to sort of sacrifice something and yeah now I'm my full self <laughs> don't know if that's a good thing <laughs> I've certainly enjoyed it I said that I would come back and do housekeeping at the bottom of the interview but actually I don't really have anything to say um if you have got any questions for me or for Annie you can reach out to me via the podcast Instagram we're not on Facebook anymore it was too ugly for me um if you've got any suggestions of people you'd like me to interview um bearing in mind that pretty much every interview that I've done this season because I recorded most of them last year I did them via like FaceTime or or whatever um so I can kind of interview anyone now which is nice actually it's been quite liberating and some of the people that I've had on this season actually really almost everybody that I've had on this season I wouldn't have been able to have on the podcast if we hadn't kind of had this seismic shift so I guess that's some sort of silver lining yeah in any case thanks for listening and I will see you in a fortnight <laughs>